BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Today is the day you will lose fat. Come see Dr. T at NJ Diet. Easiest diet I've ever done. It's changed my life. Come see Dr. T. Using blood work and DNA testing. 1-855-5-NJ-DIET and njdiet.com. Change your life in only 40 days with NJ Diet. What's up, y'all? This is Brother Ali in the mix with Tim Einekel on the library. Rapstation.com. Keep it right here. Miles Davis, The Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, Craig Mack, Corrupt, Big Daddy Kane, Razkaz, Prodigy, Buster Arms, Alicia Keys, and many more. All names associated with my next guest. His Twitter bio says, quote, you have reached the real Grammy Award winning DJ producer with over 20 years in, bu- in the business. He's the legendary Easy Mo B, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Ronico. Thank you for joining us. Hey, how you doing, man? Thank you. Thank you for being here. Okay. So what was the... You've obviously done this for a good amount of time. What was the first record you ever worked on and then what was your job for that record the first real record you, you mean that that was released yeah like first kind of yeah like label okay. backing and everything that was that was a record called ain't no smoke without fire then you got burned i told you so next time you will know with this part this and the b-side was you want a trip when I was a part of the group Rapping is Fundamental, mm-hmm. it came out on independent Kahafra Records, and that was 1989. And then your job on the record was producer, MC. I was... <laughs> everything? I, I played a couple of roles. <laughs> I, I was producer, I was MC, I was background doo-wop vocalist because riff what we did was doo-wop we did something called doo-hop right meaning doo-wop mixed with hip-hop it was it was doo-wop singing harmonizing mixed together with rap and the hip-hop beats it, it, it was pretty creative at the time as a matter of fact we were ahead of our time because what we were doing wasn't really accepted in that year, and no longer than a year or two later, on NWA, they're singing hooks. Right, right. And, and we, we started to see it creep up into the R&B, hip-hop, as what we call it now, everything. So, yeah, that would be the first record. Is that what you guys wanted wanted to happen, to have that influence on... Or were you, you, know, were you hoping that someone would take it and kind of, like... Not do the same thing, you know. Like, well, well the fact that people um, kind of took from what we were doing, we were, of course we were flattered, but <laughs> we were the ones who wanted to really 
be real, real successful with it and jump it all off. One of the bigger successful moments that we had in doing the do hop was on the do bop, Miles Davis album. Right. We were singing and rapping on there, and I think that that was one of the biggest points for us that we got exposed. Also on on Tupac, also too. We were singing on Temptation. I want to talk about those two artists soon, but um, so when did you make the kind of the the hop the right into producing? Like, what was that moment that you were like, all right, I want to kind of focus my energy or my talents on production or composing versus like emceeing as well? And well, I entered in, into the game as an artist at the same time as I did a producer, but of course, I wanted to be an indep- independent producer also, too. So the riff, the rapping is fundamental thing, lasted from inception, somewhere around 86, up to about 2000. Now, from 89, from the first release, that Ain't No Smoke Without Fire release, up to, I'd say, like about. Actually, two years, one year after that. Um, in the same year, I uh, produced two songs for Big Daddy Kane. That was the first, my first real true commercial entry with Another Victory and Call of Mr. Welfare. Right after that, I started getting calls. So I never had plans to be, you know, um, what you would call... Um, only belonging to the group. Right. Anyway, I'd always planned to be an independent producer. And after that Big Daddy Kane project, oh man, the request started rolling in. So how did you get the, so how did you get the, I guess, how did you get the call from Big Daddy Kane in the first place? Like, how did that connection happen between you two? I got the call from Big Daddy Kane because, uh, first of all, in the group it was me, AB Money, um, uh, and JR. Now, AB Money, he went to Sarah J. Hale High School together with Big Daddy K. So he had been telling them and telling them, yo, I want you to hear Boob's Beats. In my old neighborhood, they call me Booby or Boo for short. In my old Brooklyn neighborhood. Yo, I want you to hear Boob's Beats. And finally, Kane got around to hearing the beats. So that's how I got enlisted on that second album, Big Daddy. It's a Big Daddy thing with another victory and calling Mr. Welfare. When did you? I mean, you, you talked about um, wanting to become an independent producer, but when did you? What do you remember the album you heard prior to anything that made you say like, "I want to"? This is like I want to do this, and then this is the album I want to create. Any and everything that Molly Mall was doing. Um, a lot of my influence, biggest influences is Molly Maul, Howie T, uh, Herbie Lovebug at the time was producer for Kid and Play, mm-hmm. Salt and Pepper, uh, uh, DJ Jazzy J. I, I just 
felt like what I heard them doing, I, I knew that I could do it. And all I needed was to get some equipment. So after I bought that first equipment, with the money that I made from the Big Daddy project, <laughs> that was it from there on. Was was everything for you self-taught or were you like did you bring in did you have mentors mentors to kind of like guide you and teach you some of the equipment that you were buying a mixture of um watching and uh kind of paying attention to the instructions with the equipment and from there i took it on my own you know uh you know, you mentioned working with Miles Davis, and obviously you worked with Kane. I mean, you have like two greats, but totally different types of music. Yep. Um, is there a, I don't know, is there like a common artistic trait that they have that kind of, for you as a producer, like makes you know when you work with them or when you worked with them that? Something's going to happen. Miles Davis and who? And Kane. Just like, you know, like, I know they're different genres, but uh, kind of that, that, that work, maybe a worth ethic or their mind is just like constantly thinking of something that this blows you away. I saw more similarities between, I saw more similarities between Tupac and Miles Davis. Oh, okay. And I'll tell you why. Miles Davis. He likes to record straight through, of course, like play his horn. In other words, no punches, play all the way straight through. Now, when I recorded with Tupac, he was the same way. As a matter of fact, he screamed on the engineer for it. For punching? Yeah, and Miles Davis did the same thing. (laughs) So my engineer got screamed on twice. (laughs) Because um, Miles Davis was doing the song together with us the doobop song that record the doobop song so it's set up which is kind of like against the grain of what he did he played free form mm-hmm. songs didn't always have structure right but when he did this song with us it was like verse his verse of playing hook verse and so after in recording after he played his verse with his horn. My engineer stopped the tape. He said, don't stop my tape. Don't stop my tape. Let me play. Let me play. Okay, so I go into the studio with Tupac. Tupac raps his first verse. Engineer stops the tape. Again. Tupac says the same thing. Don't shut my tape off. Don't keep the tape going. I mean, I'm like, oh, it's crazy. Like, like you said, two totally different textures of an artist, but they both responded the same way. And uh, I kind of respect that about, especially about Tupac, because when a lot of rappers they come to the studio and not prepared, they just want to punch everything. Right. Nah, this guy, his, his, his breath control was immaculate. You can't rap three straight verses of a song and not be able to have some kind of breath control or sense of endurance. And that was just the way he was. That's the way he did it. So if any similarities between two artists, the 
first I ever got to see was between the two of them. But also, I imagine you don't you want to do it straight through because the importance of the live show, right? Like you can't punch in a live show. You have to be able to make. You have to be able to do yeah, three if verses. If you're a real artist, you should be prepared to do that anyway, live on 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 a stage. When Miles Davis approached you about producing his album, what was your first reaction, and what was that meeting like? Well, at first, I thought it was supposed to just be a couple of tracks. But then, as we were going along, he liked the way it was coming out. He just he said, "I want you to do the whole thing." I couldn't believe it. I'm like three, at the most, three projects into my career. I just stepped in in, in the door. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I'm like about maybe my third project in, and I'm. Already, I'm producing Miles Davis. That was amazing. I couldn't believe it. My understanding is that so Miles passed away in the middle of the project, or before the completion of the album, and you were tasked with having to complete the album. How did you talk to? You know, you talked to some producers, or engineers that have been tasked with the similar things where they are they created or they created albums post death. And it's because they like, and you talk to them, and they're like, oh, you know, I really knew the artist. I felt like he or she was there with me at all times, guiding me, you know, that. Did you feel that comfortable at that time that you could complete an album that would be kind of Miles Davis approved? I didn't want to interrupt your, um, your, state, your statement, but we actually recorded six, six full songs together. Oh, okay. And when he passed away, that's when the manager approached me and he said look easy we have two songs from the Warner Brothers vault the idea is for you to remix those that will make eight and then they said we're gonna take mystery and create a reprise of it so that makes nine mm-hmm. so to them at minimum that was a complete album and, and that's what they went with so to be honest, he recorded 80% of the album while he was alive, before he passed away. It was only those two, and those two was um, High Speed Chase. And uh, Fantasy. That uh, we didn't record together. Those are the only two. But the the rest of everything, oh yeah, we did that together. Was that the plan? To, I mean, I was curious. Is this how many album? How many tracks were? If he didn't pass away, how many tracks were supposed to actually be on the album? Or was that more? Up, it sounds like more up to the label at that time. We had no idea. We were just recording and recording and recording and um. One thing that kind of sat in me when he passed away is because I remember when we were in the studio, he pulled me to the side and he said, hey, you want to go on the road with me? 
I said, you serious? And I pointed to the SP-1200. I said, with that? He said, yeah, bring it. So just imagine if he stayed alive. I would have had a SP-1200 on stage with Miles. (laughs) That would have been crazy. That would have been amazing. In addition to the other, based upon the relationship, in addition to that, other music that could have came out of that or whatever. Wow. You know, you've obviously produced many artists. You produce uh, Jizza. You produce Notorious B.I.G. You produce RZA. You produce Tupac. Um, you also produced Notorious when he, like his first, when he was young in his career. Uh, is there, before talking about him, is there an approach that you take when working with a veteran artist versus kind of a, a new artist? Are they different approaches, or do you try to kind of deal with them the same? No, just deal with them all the same. Um, it's really about getting their attention in the studio. Um, in terms of what I brought to the table, the track, any suggestions I got to it. But at the same time, I always like to listen. Like, you the man, but they the man, too. Like, <laughs> like listen to them. They have suggestions. Like, for instance, like on Party and Bullsh, the, uh, who's the, from the Who's the Man soundtrack. It was Biggie's idea. He said, you know, he said on the hook, this is what we're going to do, Mo. You know from that. I want that. Here we go. Come on. Here we go. So he's I want you to put that in there. And I'm looking at him like, so okay. When I work with Tupac, when we did If I Die Tonight, it was his idea. He said, he said, I want you to take that. Tonight is the night. Mm-hmm. And then he said, and I want that tonight. Though. I'm like, who are we going to share these samples <laughs> in terms of, you know, clearing? Yeah. And, um, but the idea is always be open to suggestions, too. You, you have a sense of direction of what you want to do, but be open to ideas that they may have, too. What does that tell you about an artist? Like, I mean, I think I was watching an interview with you and you talked, or reading an interview with you and you talked about how... Uh, Tupac asked you to remix or put your own twist on a, a few uh, Bootsy Collins tracks, right? Uh, but what does that tell you? What did that tell you as first meeting Tupac? What does that tell you as an artist about him? They're saying, "Wow, he's telling me to do, you know, telling me to mix this." Like, what does what does that mean to you? Number one, it told me that he loved funk music. <laughs> you know, that being. Um, when I say funk, I mean like when he said Bootsy, I knew that he loved all of the stuff that most of the West Coast artists that their music was built upon: Parliament, Funkadelic, Zap, Bootsy, what have you. So when he told me that, I catered to it. I catered. I catered to it. You know. Um, I'm a chameleon of a producer. I can, I, I've been known to bend and twist and stretch myself into different shapes over the years. And it's all because I really love music that much and all of it. And it all starts from being a little eight-year-old boy, excuse me, five-year-old boy, when I got my first record player, 12 years old, 
first making it onto the turntables with two turntables in the mixer. And in growing up, this record collection that even to this day it continues to amass. So you got to imagine everything that's in there, jazz, funk, rock, of course, hip-hop, disco, reggae. I had a lot of loves and a lot of influences when it comes to the music, and it's all all because of the records, all because of the music. When you work with someone like RZA, who's also a, a producer as well, uh, what is that dynamic like in terms of... I know, kind of two producers in the studio together. Is it does he kind of take set, step, steps back a little bit as a producer, or are you kind of discussing a lot of stuff with him as a producer? At that time, right there, the name of the track was called "Sex Capades." It was on Tommy Boy Records in 1990. I remember it clearly. He was a budding, uh, uh, up and coming budding producer himself, so. Um, of course, he produced the B-side, Oh, I Love You, Rakim. Right. And I had, like, the other side, Sexcapade. So he was a new, new producer at the time. So it was kind of like a similar respect between for each other, between the two. Like, he knew who I was. He knew I had... I only had a couple of things under my belt. I just did Big Daddy Kane and a couple of other things. It's like, I want to work with you. Or how they say, I want to work with you, G. We <laughs> use that a lot, G. So I remember that. So it was more of like a, a similar respect for each other, you know? Because he was, he was a producer at the time himself, too. We both up and coming. <laughs> No. When you, you 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 read up on you and you and as the artist I mentioned you've you've worked a lot with them in the beginning beginnings of their careers. Um, how much? What is your role as the producer to, or is it your role to ins- ensure that they're not one hit wonder artists? Like they're they maybe they will have a future or they'll have actual career versus being just like going for a radio hit and then not hearing from it again. Is that your role at all? or In a way, you don't even have control over that. Um, we good at what we do, but at the end of the day, the people, they choose. Right. And if you make a whole album of 12, 14 songs, and out of that, only one of them, the public took to and then somewhere after that, your label dropped you, and you never seem to get another deal, then you're going to turn out to look like a one-hit yeah. wonder. Right. So, you know what I mean? And a lot, a lot of times, um, we don't really have a choice when it comes to that. Now, me as a producer, and what I add to it, what I'm, what I'm going to put into it, I'll do my best to try to do something that's got some longevity to it, got some life, some legs to stand on. And I guess for at least a couple of songs, I did the right thing, huh? (laughs) 
a lot of the songs they still play Man. to this day. Sometime during the day here on the radio here in New York, you 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 hear like one of them pop up as a throwback, like in the prime time mix. Like Man. that's the greatest reward right there. That's what we that's what we 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 look to achieve when we do the music. Something long lasting. I imagine if Biggie didn't die, he or get passed away, he uh, would have had a long career. Um, and there's so much. There's always this discussion about how, you know, if Biggie was alive today, the rap music we hear now wouldn't be what we hear now. Uh, in your opinion, what, what, how much do you think Biggie's death changed the face of, or what we heard, what we were hearing now on the radio? Do you think? It would have been the same kind of projection, or? Well, one thing I know for sure is I know that lyrically Biggie would have definitely been on point. Okay. I don't know why. I'm going to finish the question you just asked me, but I see another similarity in this question here. I have to backtrack for a second. I did see a a similarity with Big Daddy Kane and somebody else. Biggie. (laughs) Because they both were good with words. Yeah. And and you could tell they both were good with English. Like when they were kids in public school. You can tell that Big Daddy Kane and Biggie, you could tell that they were good with English. It's the way they... The vocabulary yeah. and the way they put the words together. And so... But getting back to the original question that made me backtrack... If Biggie was alive today, I know that he would lyrically be on point, but I wonder how or would he even adapt to a lot of the musical rhythms Mm. and the production techniques that's going on right now. Lots of things happened since he died. Right. We went from crunk to, to trap to... A lot of different, and it just been interesting if he was still alive to know how he felt about that. Would he would have continued to evolve on those beats and that kind of music, or would he kept it authentic, kind of stuff that he always did? Um, a good indication of where Biggie might have been if he was still alive was the brief direction we saw him take on the second album. Mm. Remember his collaboration with Bone Thugs? Yeah, yeah. That right there showed his ability his ability to um morph yeah yeah into yeah. something different yet have the same lyrical force and agility with words but at the same time kind of adapt to different styles and the bone thug style was it was a a real different thing coming in at that time. I guess there's no way of this new style is obviously he didn't hear it, so there's no way of knowing that he would have 
take. But I don't think he would have been rhyming real slow in kindergarten like right now, <laughs> like I, like a lot of the rappers I hear. Some of it's just too slow for me. Man. Some of it sound like kindergarten, man. I gotta say. <laughs> um. So I've uh, I've to, I have to admit something. Uh, <laughs> There was a moment in my life in the 90s where I was just like, I was that guy who was like, if it's on the radio, it must be BS. You know, there's no, you know, there's, I'm not going to listen to it, blah, blah, blah. It's going underground. And now in, in hindsight, you listen to the stuff from the 90s, like Big Pun and even Biggie. And you're like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, they're just incredible lyricists. And uh, if I came to you at that time in the 90s and told you that argument... What would you have said to me? It's a funny answer that I got to your your question because me and a number of different people, we talked about that before. It's just working out that way. A lot of the stuff that anything that we thought was so bad, 8, 10, 15, 20 years ago, you compare it to different stuff you're hearing now yeah. it sounds like beautiful music to your ears <laughs> it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right so, it does. but me myself I never ever been against the hip hop songs that made it to radio and especially in the 90s it was a lot of great music that made it to the radio you, you know what I think if anything we have to um, kind of appreciate that that was even happening right. back then because now the styles you're talking about and the kind of artists that you mentioned in your question it wouldn't even happen today in other words I don't like to just pigeonhole and use the term boom bap all the time because that's not the only way to describe what was going on in the 90s with hip hop, you know, during the yeah. Biggie, Tupac, uh, um, Terror Squad, um, Rockefeller, whatever was happening in that era at that time, right there. Don't like to pigeonhole it as boom bap, but we need to be real, real appreciative that any of that stuff made it to the radio. Would never ever happen today. It would never happen today. It just the styles of music is different. The gener the generation is different. Um, radio programming is different. So many things. So many different reasons why that just wouldn't happen right now. So. If anything, I kind of appreciate. I, I actually, a better word is I, I miss that era. I wish that a lot of the things that made it to radio um, still could today and now. And they talked about uh, Diddy with the. They talked about Puffy with the um, the shiny suit era of music, yeah, yeah. and all of that. You look back now, that don't, it don't sound bad. No, no, it doesn't. <laughs> like, like, That's the thing, like you, you, you would take that right now 
in a heartbeat over a lot of the stuff that you're hearing right now. So it's just like some things like, I don't know, at the time we being so spoiled, you don't really get a chance to appreciate it. It's like time has to pass for you to really look back and say, wow, like, that was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yo, I, like you listened to. I was just being spoiled and greedy, but now I see like that was great. Right now, I yeah. see the pop stuff now, and I just want to mm-hmm. jump out the window. Um, when you were collaborating with these artists, how important, or any artists, how important is the the in studio setting, like being there actually with the person versus like. You know, now it's so easy. Oh, you email. mean? Oh, you mean actually working together in the studio yeah, versus, versus emailing? Emailing, yeah. Yeah, I still think that's important. Although um, there are some good records that got done by me emailing tracks or files, mm-hmm. but nothing, nothing beats the synergy, the chemistry you get being in the same room with somebody. Like that exchange I spoke of that I had with Tupac and Miles and stuff like I don't think it would have came out or been the same if we couldn't be together like we were. Mm-hmm. You created um, an instrumental album with um, Chuck D. Slam Jams. Um, On Slam Jams Records. On Slam yes, Jam. sir. <laughs> um, Chuck, Chuck D. Shout to the Institution of Public Enemy Forever One of my favorite groups Um, But the instrumental album Yes And you don't stop Um, Okay What was the For you What was the Kind of the the goal With that album But also If you're using Just instrumentals How do you Convey that Kind of that message That goal To your listeners with the with the array of different styles that um, I placed on that album, you so saw how we just talked about. Um, didn't really appreciate it at the time. I, I say maybe ten years from now, yeah. somebody will look back and they'll say, "Yo, yo, where was I? Why I didn't hear this? Why I wasn't paying attention?" I don't know. It's only our job to just make music and just keep moving. Keep making, keep moving. Keep making and keep moving. But is that also kind of what you want? Like, kind of... Is it, is it, is it better to get the appreciation, appreciation now and then have the listener move on? Or get the appreciation... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, it's kind of it's equal to that, that artist... From a small town in, in Tennessee who made like a local hit that barely scraped the bottom of the top 100, top R&B 100 back then. But say like a new artist today will come along, discover that gem, sample it, put it into their music. And now the thing that was dusty and forgotten about never got recognized now it's like picked up it's almost like treated like a piece of gold that got dusted off and reintroduced to everybody so 
That's how I, that, that, that's the most positive way that I have to looking at anything that I did that people sleep on and they don't get it today. You know? Later on, somebody will catch on to it. <laughs> In other words, I said all of that to say, and this is my original reason for making music. I would love to. Um, I would love to leave behind what I call old 45s. You know, we dig through your, your parents' old 45s, or, and they take that and they bring that into something new. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to leave behind old 45s. That's the concept. Uh, I just want to quickly ask you about the um, recognition parties you do. Mm. If you could just quickly take take the listener into those parties, and how did they how did they actually how did the idea actually start? Shout to uh, my partner DJ M Ski, who was the actual curator of recognition. I was only supposed to be his first guest. The idea was he was going to have a guest DJ with him every because it was a monthly party he would have a guest DJ every month so he chose me as the first guest the first party went so well he called me back a few days later and asked me yo man would you mind doing this on a regular with me and I said sure no problem and he said for real like he couldn't believe it like Easy Mo B had time to do no but um, the reason why I I said sure no problem is because I really love vinyl and playing my records that much and from being busy producing all of the stuff that takes up uh, my time every chance I get to spin the vinyl it's a real pleasure man like I said I've been collecting records since 8 years old and besides the spare time that I have or when I'm sampling them what other real chance do I get to share this stuff so recognition was perfect um you've done this for a while you produce have produced obviously a lot of music um couple questions is there this is there one track one sample maybe or you know beat you made or even album that you kind of look back and are kind of amazed that the album was created and that you were a part of it? Of course, the Miles Davis album. Yeah. If you want to talk about a track, a beat, excuse me for the chewing sounds because I didn't got so comfortable here with the interview and I'm eating and, <laughs> and talking, but Buster Rhymes, everything remains raw. Man, listen. I know you probably even heard that that song a thousand times before. I don't know wherever you pull it up on on YouTube or wherever. If you got the single at home, man, go back and listen to the instrumental. Of that track Either I was like Seriously high (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, I was seriously <laughs> No, seriously that, that track There's so much Beautiful stuff going on In there if I had to um, like approximate the number of tracks across the board, when you spread them out across the board that I use, man, I can hear at least anywhere from 17 to almost 20 tracks. And minimum 24 tracks. I mean, for a decent board. I mean, who who, who takes up that amount of space on the board for tracks? I mean, you got to leave some some room for for the vocals, for the person that's actually rapping or singing on the track. But no, seriously, go back and if you can, listen to the instrumental of that of Everything remains raw. Man, there's some beautiful stuff going on up in there. Like, sounds just weave in and out. And, and as always, because that's always been my concept of, of what I call playing samples. Like, everything that's being used is harmonically in tune with each other. You know, because for me, I never would just take a sample and just put it into a beat. You know, when you add, when you stacking sounds and you adding on, to me, it's always had to fit. Like whatever sound I put in there, I gotta tweak it. Mm. I gotta fine tune it to harmonically till it's in tune with everything else. Mind you, I ain't got no no formal music training on anything. Everything I've done since the beginning of time. It's just by ear, man. You gotta really think about that. I produced an entire Miles Davis album by ear. That's incredible. No, no, no formal music training. It's just like my ear has always told me what's right and, and what's wrong. Yeah. So is it like that? Yeah, you know, some artists that like a sixth sense, so to say. Like you get the feel. You could say that something like. But it's like. Anybody that's a, a true musician or if you, you care that much, based upon all of the music and records that was done well that you heard in the past, you're working on something and there's a new piece or anything that just sticks out and it's not right to you, you're going to know and you're going to point that out. I've gotten in, into arguments with the artists because he's like, I don't hear it. I don't hear what you're talking about. Sorry. I'm like, nah, it's not right. We got to fix that. <laughs> Later on, we laugh about it, but at the time, like, I'm, I'm real serious about it. How long does a, a beat like that, the Busta Rhymes beat, take to create? And then how do you know? How, how did you know it was done? It could take 15 minutes. It could take 15 hours. I've had beats that take 15 days. And how do you have so much patience? Because <laughs> when you want what you want, you're patient enough to wait and work for it. Right. I've seen times when I'm making a beat. By the way, like, all of these years, everything that I've ever done. By the way, I don't use um, 
kits, like drum kits. Oh, it's uh. And you know they have sound modules too. Yeah. I don't use. I never have used kits, like drum kits, and all of my sounds have always come from records. If I didn't actually play play them in addition to the beat that's there by keyboard, all of my sounds have always come from records. For me, it's, it, it, it's not always about using loops. To me, the realization is that you only you wouldn't have the loop if you didn't have the instruments or the players. So a long time ago, I said, why just continue taking loops? Why not use the instruments and play back something original? And that formula started somewhere around the early 90s because I was at Rush inside of the Def Jam offices, the same offices that Chuck D was in Public Enemy that they were frequenting, but I hadn't met them yet. They had a meeting. Um, The manager that I had at the time, and it was this big long list of artists. You know, the De La Soul and Bismarcky thing happened, so a lot more attention was put on samples. I had this big, crazy, long list of artists. And in the meeting, she told all of the producers, me, Daddy O, Hank Shockley, Large Professor, every, any and everybody that was over there. She said, you see this list? And you see all of these names on this list? Stay away from those artists. Don't touch them. Don't sample them. So I left there depressed. <laughs> Feeling like, you know, what am I going to do? And that's where... Uh, the concept was already there, but that's where the, my my style really was born right then and there. Is because I had to admit after leaving there and her um, pointing that list out to us, like I had to admit and say to myself, like, what you do don't don't just stop at a loop. Mm. You have the air and the ability to create something brand new from scratch. And I was like, you like using records? How about instead of sampling loops, straight loops all the time, how about sample instruments? Mm. Yeah. The same way like a band would get together a bassist, a rhythm guitarist, a drummer, horn player, keyboard player, and they, they get together and they jam and they make music. I was like, yo, that's what you need to do. You need to start jamming. And and that SP twelve hundred you got right there, and your and your um, rack mount Akai S nine fifty sampler. I said that's gonna be your <laughs> your band. That that machine was gonna be my band. Everything I put into it was gonna be my band, and I've been doing that ever since. Wow. Wow. Ever since I have a, a new artist female artist that I just released. Her name is Alana Nakwa. A song called Mary Jane. You get a chance to listen to it. And when she hit the fan, I was embarrassed. Fuck love, now I'm a savage. Fuck about my face. No love for lanes. Mary Jane, the only one I'll be let hit it. Even though it's 
R&B, my technique is still there, still doing that same thing. Like, I call it playing samples, but making something original. Mm -hmm. Looping and looping and looping and looping after a while gets kind of boring, even to yourself. (laughs) I can imagine. After a while, you begin to want to challenge yourself to go higher and do more. You can't always rely on the loop. You know what I mean? There's more to you and you're more talented. You're more capable than than just the loop. So I thank her, my manager, rest in peace, miss her, uh, Francesca Sparrow from RPM Rush Producers Management. So I thank her for that day and for that list because it challenged me and pushed me to the next level as a creator. And that's how you got flavor in your ear. And just like a piece of sizzling, you'll fit inside my stomach with the eggs and grits between. The king is what I mean. I mean, my man. The Lost Boys, Jeeps, Lex, Cooper, Penis, and the Benz. With Latifah and so many different records. Booty rappers posing as drunk clappers and bitch smacks. Need to switch the BNX. Images on your ass to hold the laughter. And the lip, the clappers in the clip. I flip a flow like the mommy turn the tricks. Am I clicking on what you like? Drop what you leave. Who wants to be from school? That challenged me. That pushed me. Do you think it also allowed you to, like you just mentioned, um, spread to different genres of music yeah definitely and then with the con- the, the concept I'm talking about when you use that across the different genres say like reggae from reggae to jazz to R&B disco even house music I love house music too when I say house music I mean true authentic house music not that EDM they do right now that's a derivative of house music people will get it twisted EDM is nothing more than a, a derivative of house music but it's just about spreading that concept of the playing samples thing my technique across everything that I do whenever I'm doing whatever I'm doing that's easy Moby Legendary Easy Moby. Uh, an honor to have you on the library to Monaco. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Oh man, thanks. Niggas can't see 
see my routine When I round up, I flip more niggas and get cream And you, you know what the fuck I mean Now I'm on the scene, stepping through like me, Joe Green How I making you feel the extreme Till I rock you out and turn on my real high beam Oh shit, now I got your brain fried Once you inhale the smoke from my flow Carbon monoxide, you drink imagination Let me take you higher, great hell, no earthquake Earth, wind, and fire, yo BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. 
See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.